arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Today we will be counting down the top 10 movie car chases. Jump-starting our list is the opening scene from the film where Ryan Gosling plays a stunt driver by day and a getaway driver by night. Number 9. Freeway Chase, The Matrix Reloaded. Number 8. Mini Heist, The Italian Job. 7. Briefcase Pursuit, Ronin. Number 6. Train Chase, The French Connection. Number 5. The Aqueduct. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Number 4, The Paris Chase, The Born Identity. Number 3, Mission from God, The Blues Brothers. They're not gonna catch us. We're on a mission from God. Number 2, The Convoy, Mad Max 2, The Road Boy. Taking the lead in our list is the grandfather of all modern high-speed chases. A pursuit between Steve McQueen and a pair of deadly assassins. It starts on the streets of San Francisco and ends up on the highway. Those are some pretty good chase scenes. Steve McQueen is a great one, but my favorite is the Born Identity and the chase through Paris. Jones is about to be chased himself in these episodes. Fortunately, he doesn't have his Jeep because that was destroyed in a fire and he has the Mustang Shelby given to him by Coco. Jones is convinced now that Archie Lincoln is behind the murder of Harrison Mobley, but he just can't prove it. There is a confluence at Northridge Apartments where the patio boys are digging up the foundation. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Let's begin. The final episode, episode 5 of Six Feet Under by Robert P. Fitton, beginning now. Six Feet Under, Chapter 19. As Franny went to work and McGill back to the paper, Jones conducted an intense practice for his game against St. Pat's in 10 days. He worked his boys perhaps a little bit too hard, and this being a bye week, he advised them that tomorrow they could rest. Then a phone call from LG alerted him that a team of lawyers were being assembled in a defamation case against Jones. Name me one thing I've uncovered that isn't true, LG, said Jones, the phone to his ear as he marched toward Miriam Kendall Lincoln's office in the community building across the common. He checked Coco Shelby Mustang one more time as Arnie Dewars and the cab of one of the Dewars delivery trucks swerved to the right. Jones ran onto the common as Arnie pulled to a squeaky stop. Bucky Driscoll leaned out the passenger side window. He wore a blue Dewar's lumber shirt. Hey, Matthias, called Arnie as he and Bucky were now in the window. The truck slowly rolled forward. Everything's taken care of. The fix is in. What are you talking about, Arnie? The large tires slowly crunched the sand on the pavement. Arnie, watch out for that Mustang. I'm an expert driver. Yeah, I ain't got no award, said Bucky. What, for demolition derby? Just put on the brakes, Arnie. Ah, you worry too much, said Arnie as the large truck dislodged the metal bike rack and threw three racing bikes in the road. Arnie, the rack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Arnie revved the engine and the truck plowed the bikes and the rack onto Shore Road. Jones watched Arnie, impervious to the rack, push the rack and the bikes ahead toward the hill. The rack and the bikes were then crushed by the huge truck and lay scattered across the asphalt. Jones removed his cell and dialed Strickland. To his surprise, he was taken to Strickland's voicemail. This is Chief Strickland. Leave a message. George, there's a bike rack and bikes scattered all over Shore Road just beyond my house, courtesy of our favorite lumber company. I'll get the stuff off the road. Jones reversed his course toward Shore Road and jogged ahead. Cars were already jammed up and pulled around the rack and bikes. Jones waved the first car by and then raised his hand to stop the line of cars. He dragged the rack to the side of the road and quickly lifted the bikes to the road shoulder. As the road cleared and the cars began moving forward, Jones spotted the frizzy-haired Brownie Plimpton pass by on his motorcycle midway in a line of cars. Brownie! Brownie! Brownie sped away from the stop sign as Jones sprinted along his backyard, still resembling a bombed-out battlefield. He ran along the shrubs toward the Shelby. Brownie reached the corner of Main Street as Jones leaped into the Mustang. Jones turned over the powerful engine just as Brownie banked left. Jones shifted and moved along the service road on the inner side of the common. Brownie zoomed by the remains of Lark and Flo's houses. Jones turned at the police station near the church and moved his second gear up Main Street. Brownie had already crested the Washington Street Hill. Jones tore onto Main Street, stunned by the car's power. At the top of the hill, Brownie, without putting on his blinker, veered into Cedarville Circle. Jones accelerated by the first entrance to the circle and downshifted as he swung toward the other end of the road. As he crept up the quiescent street, Jones eventually saw Lincoln's driveway. He pulled over at the bend. Brownie's motorcycle was parked squarely in front of the garage. He opened the garage door. Inside the open garage door was a beige Mercedes. Jones removed his cell phone and again dialed Strickland. This time the chief picked up. Thias, I'm bringing Wendell back from PW Medical. Hello, hello, said Wendell. You all right, Wendell? asked Jones. You saved Flo's life. George says I can get the Fletcher Award from Valore. You mean Valor, said Jones. No, said Wendell. The Fletchers used to own a Valor company in Prince William. Jones winced and kept his eyes on Lincoln's contemporary style home. George, Brownie Plimpton just pulled into Lincoln's driveway. He's inside now. I'm down the street. Well, the only thing I have on Brownie is your complaint about the football. George, it's pretty obvious this idiot is a lackey for Lincoln. I understand that, but with no proof. When Strickland remained silent, Jones spoke up. How would Brownie know Lincoln? Froggy and Brownie are friends. Look, we just crossed the notch. I'm dropping Wendell off at his house. Stay put. Once Brownie leaves, we'll bring him in for questioning. I'll bet money he knows about Lark's kidnapping. No doubt. George, I'm sure that Lincoln murdered Harrison Mobley. Let's just get Brownie in for questioning about the football. I'm right here, George. Strickland phoned Jones from Main Street about 15 minutes later. Jones waited as darkness fell over the Devonshire Hills in Hamilton. Inside the Lincoln house, lights came on up front as well as the bulbs along the driveway. 
Jones had been sitting in the Mustang for an hour and 15 minutes when Brownie and Lincoln emerged and shook hands outside the garage. Lincoln, fortunately for Jones, moved quickly back inside. Brownie revved up his motorcycle. George, Brownie is on the motorcycle. Okay, I'm right beyond what's left of Clark and Flo's house. When Brownie spun out of Lincoln's driveway, Jones backed up without the headlights. He didn't see the motorcycle when he reached Washington Street. He must be coming your way, George, because I don't see him. Wait until the taillights are on the hill. There's the headlight. I'm pulling out. Jones flipped on the Mustang's lights once Brownie cleared the hill. He shifted quickly. When Jones neared town, Strickland had Brownie up against the cruiser. He pulled the Mustang along the sidewalk. Well, here's Coach Jones, Brownie. I've given you your rights. You don't have to answer anything. Did you or did you not throw a football to disable Coach Jones? Brownie's hands shook violently as he began howling. The hell is wrong with you, Brownie? Then Brownie shook all over. That's enough. I'm taking you in. Strickland opened the rear door and stuffed Brownie in, still shaking inside the cruiser. George, you want me to get LG? No, get me a psychiatrist. LG, wearing his jeans and blue sweater, told them he was out of uniform. Although he was not Brownie's lawyer, he monitored the questioning. Brownie had refused with grunts and groans all legal help. Strickland rolled his eyes. Again, why were you at Attorney Lincoln's house? Pizza! Pizza! George, this is fruitless. Look, guys, said LG, a waste of time. I'm heading back to my lamb shop. We all have pet names for our spouses, LG, said Strickland. No, I, I really have lamb chops with mint jelly waiting. The works. Froggy, Froggy, Froggy stole. Froggy stole Bucky's car, said Brownie from the cell. What? yelled Strickland, spinning around. Froggy drove that car out of Parkview? Strickland had to grab his shoulders. Then who was chasing Froggy? asked Jones. Yes, who had your bike? Brownie pretended to button his lip. Let me ask you this, said LG, tightening his gray eyes. Why would Froggy have to be on the run from anyone? It's not for me to say. Oh no, oh no. Brownie, Brownie, said Jones. Immediate side road theory came into his mind. It was Gataki, wasn't it? Brownie's face froze, then he shook his head. Unfortunately, Gataki is dead said Strickland. Brownie, there are legalities here that could land you in jail. Yeah, I'll have a legal defense, said LG. He turned around in the chair and sat in front of Brownie. Brownie, are you in danger? Brownie nodded quickly again as he made an unusual expression by expanding his lips. Chief Strickland can get you to a safe place, right, George? Brownie, you don't have to be scared. We can give you protection. Jones, Strickland, and LG stepped into the corridor. Let's continue this later, said LG. He's not comfortable saying anything, which means you need to get him to a safe place, George. Mary's cousin Willie owns a hotel in Manchester. They can keep tabs on Brownie. But first, let's talk in the morning, okay, said LG. Let Brownie think about his legal predicament overnight. Looks like Bucky was telling the truth, said Jones. Strickland opened his dark eyes. Stranger things have happened. Call me if he mentions Archie, said LG. Jones glanced toward the jail cell and then back at LG. He's just too damn scared. 
Jones had showered and started to dress when the landline sounded. He threw the towel back in the bathroom and picked up the phone next to his bed. Hello? Coach, this is Archie Lincoln. Jones wondered why he was now Archie instead of Attorney Lincoln. Seems as though we missed our dinner at the Chateau. Yes, sir, I've been busy on a number of things. Lincoln had turned on his charmer voice. I thought this was a bye week for your team. All the more reason not to get rusty. I haven't had dinner yet. Can I meet you over at the Chateau? I would be happy to pick you up. Not a problem, said Lincoln as Jones grew slightly scared about the ride-off. Thanks, but I have several errands to run tonight, said Jones. Like staying alive, he thought. Very well. 8 p.m. The Chateau. I'll be there. The line clicked. Was Lincoln aware how far Jones had brought this 25-year-old case? As he pulled his nicer clothes out of the closet, Jones moved through the case step by step. When Betty Ann Lovell's body turned up onto Jones's patio, Lincoln obviously heard the news on TV or from his cronies in Picada's office. Jones took out his best blue Oxford out of the closet and a blue silk tie from a wedding last year. There was no way Lincoln knew that Jones had talked to Arnie, or maybe he knew Jones's background. Did he know about the tax records or Jones's knowledge of the apartment fire and Miriam having lived there? Lincoln must have known Jones was on to him or he wouldn't have gotten involved in the historical society. Now with the claw having hacked Gataki to death, Lincoln needed Jones out of the way. Fully dressed in front of the mirror, Jones tightened the smooth tie. He picked up his cell phone and called Coco. In the background, he heard rock music from Club Max. Jonesy, what's up, bro? Lincoln. What about him? I'm meeting him for dinner at the Chateau at 8. What are you, crazy, Jonesy? Why? The guy knows you've already discovered his big secret. I'm going to stay on him, Coco. I'm sending somebody over there. This clown would do anything to protect his background. I'll be all right. If you thought that, Jonesy, you wouldn't have called me. The Chateau, an ornate Victorian mansion atop Burgess Hill, was nestled between the fall foliage. Window tables overlooked the bay to the east and Oglethorpe Park and fall foliage to the south. Ornate wallpaper and wood moldings presented an 1800s flavor. Patrons could dine on three floors or a mezzanine. Lincoln had commandeered a table on the first floor, above the lights of Hamilton Bay in the distance. The erudite attorney, reeking of Wolf's Lair cologne, wore a deep business suit with a solid red tie. Jones noticed the numerous rings on his fingers and gold initial cufflinks inserted through his blue striped shirt sleeves. His wide cheeks were butted with five o'clock shadow, and his straight white teeth flashed like a traffic light when he spoke. But it was his sky-blue eyes that had an intensity challenging Jones even before Lincoln opened his mouth. So, you were recruited to coach in Hamilton, he asked as he worked on his garden salad. Jones panned his thick brows and silky gray hair. Hamilton Fletcher was looking for a change, and the Lark Larson era was over. Thank God. Then you're a local boy, sir. Lincoln opened his eyes wide when he wanted to feign astonishment. Well, I arrived in Prince William when I was 10. My father was transferred. Jones munched on the crunchy lettuce. What did he do? 
dad was in banking. He transferred five years later, which left my mother back home and eventually divorced. I went to PW High and later to the Sorrento Law School in New York City. Wow, you have your bio down pat. Jones leaned forward. Your wife accompany you to law school? Miriam and I were married post-law school, right in Hamilton. That explained the five-year gap after the big blowout. How did you meet Ms. History? laughed Jones. Ms. History, that's cute. <laughs> the owner of the chateau, Jim Salinas, a middle-aged man with combed-down dark hair and a ready smile, walked quickly but slightly hunched as he approached the linen cloth table. His dark tuxedo signaled the quality and ambiance of the chateau. Hey, coach, remember, uh, this meal is on the house. Jim, you really don't have to. Well, somebody called Palooka, Porky Palooka. You remember that, Archie? I do. Right over there along the wall, he broke five chairs and a couple of tables. Took eight cops to get him under control. I believe Kip Bosco was knocked unconscious. Oh, well, said Jones. Maybe Palooka has some redeeming qualities. I'll second that said Lincoln. Bosco is a buffoon. Enjoy your meal. Sandra will have it out in a few minutes. Thanks, Jim, said Jones. Guess this one is on the house, coach. Jones started in on his salad again. So, how did you meet Ms. History? Lincoln seemed slightly rattled and set down his fork. He had his bio memorized, but paused with an addendum of how he met his wife. Miriam and I met at a lecture, actually. Here in Prince William. I think you can tell a lot about somebody by the lectures they attend, said Jones. Lincoln wiped his mouth with the dinner napkin. Oh, it was a local talk on uh, statistics, sponsored by the Prince William Library. Pretty boring. I thought I could use that if I got my law degree. Jones finished his salad, wondering why it would have been in doubt whether Lincoln got his law degree. Oh, believe me, Archie, I live by stats and football. I also look at the big picture. So, you two began with a romance that continues. Lincoln exposed the teeth again. <laughs> 22 years? Why wait to marry? asked Jones. Again, the pause. Well, you know women, they never can make up their minds. Sorry, I just assumed that you two were lovebirds, needled Jones. We were, said Lincoln emphatically. And are. Have you ever thought of going into the law, coach? He asked as Sander brought the trays to the side holder. No, I believe in a straightforward argument. Oh, you think I'm crooked because I'm Picotta's lawyer. Jones smiled as Sander placed the plate of prime rib and potatoes in front of Jones. Lincoln had scrod and white wine. Jones lifted up his red wine and the two men clinked glasses. Here's two straightforward arguments, said Jones. Only if it helps my client, said the blue-eyed Lincoln with a deep laugh. The expressive blue eyes were part of his presentation. So was the modulating of his voice according to the situation. Even his oversized hands were weapons of articulation and argument. Diagonally across the restaurant, a heavy-eyed Winky entered the restaurant with a tall, thin guy in sunglasses and a light-colored Panama hat. Oh, brother. What was that, coach? Nothing, nothing. What about you? I would think that some girl would have scoffed you up by now. You're in good shape. You have a premier job in the area. Well, someday the right one will come along. Again, the flash Lincoln smile. 
Plus, I'm a busy man with my teams. I bike and jog to keep in shape. I see, I've always been a gym rat. Right. Jones wanted to remove the word gym from the description. Then he suddenly thought of Betty Ann Lovell. Lincoln must have met her at Chick Corey's gym. How's your prime rib, coach? Good. Did you and Miriam live together before you got married? Question made Lincoln flinch ever so slightly. He must have perfected the art of manipulating his emotions rather than showing his feelings. Yeah, but why would you care about that? Just a question. If it were me and I fell in love, I would just get married, said Jones, as if he were just a jock coach. It was what he wanted Lincoln to believe. Look, coach, we decided it didn't make any difference. You know, living together or legally married. Lincoln, under normal circumstances, would have deflected the question, but the wily Jones had the attorney on the defense as he pretended to be naive and dense, but Jones was not through. So, you live in Hamilton, he asked, but you're not a Hamilton boy. Lincoln set down his fork. Jones not only had him on the defense, but he had unnerved Lincoln. I don't consider answering questions of a personal nature to be apropos at a casual dinner. Even his eyes had tightened to a reflective intensity. I never minded that my life is an open book. I left a girl named Stephanie back in Indiana. She was overbearing. That's nice. Now Lincoln tried to add positives to his marital resume. That was not defensive as much as it was panic. Miriam seemed like a well-balanced woman. A little timid. What the hell are you talking about, Jones? So much for calling him coach. You are very annoying for someone in authority. Just a thought, Attorney Lincoln, answering as if he were Bucky. I would ask you not to psychoanalyze my wife. My apologies, Counselor. I just wouldn't want to walk all over a woman. I would want a partner that's not a doormat. What the hell? I resent your intimidations, you son of a bitch. Jones had made him pop, and his smile prompted Lincoln to tap his fingers. Lincoln now knew that Jones was aware of his horrific past. Nothing to do with you, Mr. Lincoln, just my preference in women. Yeah, right. Jones leaned forward and folded his hands. So you and Miriam lived in Hamilton for how long? Why don't you just look it up? Said Lincoln, pulling out his phone. Then he stood. I have an incoming call. Jones also believed that Lincoln knew from his look-it-up remark that Jones had been snooping. Problems? asked Jones sarcastically. I have to go. Salinas has the check. Thanks. He never took the call and faced Jones. You'd best know that real life has little resemblance to a football field. Oh, contraire, counselor. Being on your own one-yard line, you risk losing the game. Either you move forward or you lose. Jones watched Lincoln march by Jim Salinas without a word. Salinas shrugged his shoulders at Jones and meandered over to the table. Jones tilted his head. You still have dessert, coach, and so did Archie. I'll take them both, said Jones. You know, I can always tell from how people appear when they leave as to what happened over dinner. Archie's pretty pissed off. Jim, you're right on the mark said Jones, tapping his shoulder. And I'll have a double shot of that chocolate mousse. After dessert, Jones hurried over to Winky and his friend at the side table. Winky, you didn't give Lincoln the treatment, did you? Oh, got no orders. Who's this, Panama Joe? Uzi, 
Uzi dipped his sunglasses down the bridge of his nose. You work at the courthouse, said Jones. Don't you think Lincoln would have recognized you? Uzi opened up his blue eyes wide and pursed his lips as if he were going to whistle. Then he spoke in a raspy whisper. Disguise! Jones immediately called Coco on the way to the Mustang. Jonesy! Coco, that idiot Uzi was with Winky at the Chateau. What are you talking about? It's amazing that Lincoln didn't recognize him from the courthouse. Oh, I'll take care of him. Listen, how did it go with Lincoln? The man talks a good game with his usual blips and quips. He pontificates easily about his bio, but I sense there's something weird about his relationship with Miriam. I pushed him on the fact that he and Miriam lived together, but never mentioned Northridge, not once. The guy's a lawyer, what do you expect? They didn't marry because he went to law school, according to Lincoln. Something isn't right about that. He left town after the fire, and he bought that land real quick. Then later, they moved to Cedarville Circle. And here's the clincher, Coco. I'm all ears, Jonesy. Jones walked briskly along the parking lot toward the Mustang on the street. We were talking about staying in shape, and he said he was a gym rat. Always has been. Yeah, he's a rat, all right. Hey, Lovell hung around chicks. That's how she met Mobley. That could be the link to the murder. Look, Jonesy, let Strickland take over. Lincoln ain't stupid. I want you over my place again tonight before you get yourself killed. Lincoln's not messing around. Now you practice tomorrow. Yeah, let's just make sure you make it to practice. I don't trust this guy. Odds are Lincoln blew up Lawson's place and your jeep. Jones drove slowly by the chateau. Look, I'm a big boy. Oh, is that right, tough guy? Either go to my mother's or to the club. Six Feet Under, Chapter 20 Jones climbed into the Shelby's new leather smell. Just starting the engine was like igniting a rocket bound for space. Coco was right. Jones had pushed Lincoln off-center. Lincoln now must have suspected Jones knew about his actions during the big blowout. He looked over his left shoulder and then pulled onto the street. All the way down Guidry Street, he began setting up new defenses against his friend Max's passing attack in a game a week from Saturday, instead of keying on a fullback like Coble. He knew he had to cover the secondary against Tom Pace's bullet passes. In the rearview mirror, a green pickup swung around the intersection from a side street. As they gained ground on Jones, he shifted the Shelby, revving the engine tachometer as he raced up Guidry, but the truck accelerated. Come on, he shouted. Is that what Lincoln's plan was all along? To murder him no matter what was said at the chateau? Jones downshifted and screeched the wide tires on 2nd Street. Then he worked the pedal and the clutch as he sped by dozens of townhouses at high speed. The green truck fishtailed onto 2nd Street. Jones fought to push Coco's number, but his phone shook in his hand as he came to the end of 2nd Street, where the road merged onto Beckley Boulevard. He could not afford to slow and took the corner so fast he slid into the center line median. Truck slowed at the corner. Jones again pushed down on the accelerator and finally hit the redial to Coco. Jonesy, you're racing that car. No, I'm being chased by a green pickup on Beckley Boulevard, he shouted as his voice shook on the bumps. That low-life Lincoln doesn't waste any time. Stay on the phone. Pickup gained speed up Beckley. 
Jones could hear Coco the club music disappeared. I'll be in the Beamer in two seconds. You armed? I was at dinner. Yeah, with that scum who just sicked the pickup on you. Jonesy, get on the highway and gun it. The stain can leave that moron in the dust. I'm on the other side of town. I'm moving now, Jonesy. Where's the creep? It's a few hundred yards back. Take Stevens Court. It'll bring you to Portland and to the highway. Jones scanned the side streets and downshifted at Stevens. The lower gears kept him stable on the turn. The side bricks whipped by him with just inches separating the sides of the car. I'm inside the alley. He saw cars passing in the streetlight glow ahead, but he did not see the truck behind him in the alley. He downshifted again, paused, and shot onto Portland Boulevard ahead of the traffic. What happened, Jonesy? I'm on Portland. Good. I'll meet you at the Canal Street off-ramp. Jones repeatedly checked his rearview mirror, his heart still pounding as he moved along some of the low-income housing. At the entrance to Guinevere Terrace, the pickup truck drove onto the road to block Jones. Damn, there he is! What the hell? Jones jammed the brakes, but then accelerated. The rear of the Mustang whipped around. Jones shot across the median. Two cars swerved out of the way, but he continued to increase his speed and moved away from the truck. I just pulled a donut on Portland. I'm headed back around the other way towards St. Bart's. Where's the truck, Jonesy? It's going across the median, but slowly. Now what? I'm heading towards St. Bart's. You'll have to take the back row by the cemetery to the Devonshires. Hide in the quarries if you have to. I'm less than a mile behind you. I see St. Bart's said Jones as the illuminated stone spire came into view. Head for the cemetery and up the hill over the notch. I'm driving around by the transfer station. I'll talk to you. Jones's head snapped to the rear mirror. The truck was less than a football field away. As Jones approached St. Bart's, he plowed the car right into the parking lot across the rectory. The truck skidded, but Jones accelerated and leaped the sidewalk. Then he backtracked toward the parish hall and out the other side street. The lights blazed in the rectory and the outside spotlights came on. When Jones saw the truck pass by the church, he again spun around and retreated to the parish hall. Gallagher was now on the front porch with his hand raised as he screamed. Jones slowly swung onto the road. The pickup was positioned across the side road behind the church. Jones edged his way to Maple Street across from the church. Soon he spotted the pickup far up Oak Street. When the truck crossed onto Oak Street, he again spun out, afraid at his high speed in the residential area. He swung right toward the cemetery with the pickup in pursuit. A flurry of shots sounded behind him and the rear shadow box window cracked as a bullet embedded in the dash. Moving diagonal, he raced toward Route 32, but he could not see who was driving the truck. Jones did not see Coco at the corner as he shifted, raced up the long incline toward the notch. He fought to control the Mustang as the truck roared close to his rear bumper. With just his headlight shining across the jagged ledge rocks, Jones raced by and veered up the curved highway toward the Hamilton town line. The truck smashed his rear bumper and Jones gripped the wheel as the Mustang rocked back and forth across the road. When he finally straightened out the wheel, he was still not at the top, and the truck came at him again. Jones pushed the Mustang, cresting the notch near the entrance to the quarries. Jones saw the Beamer to the left. Coco stood in the middle of the road. The truck 
to avoid Coco, Fishtail right and rumbled into the entrance of the quarries. Still moving at high speed, the truck vaulted the wood rail and sailed into the air several hundred feet above the forest below. Jones looked around and his headlights swung over Coco, standing in front of the beamer. As Jones pulled over, he immediately popped open the door. Coco, you saved my life. How did you know that car wasn't going to hit you? I didn't. Are you all right, Jonesy? He hit the Mustang, said Jones, looking at the broken guardrail. You were under fire? Who was driving that truck? Yelled Coco as they crossed the road. I have no idea. Call Strickland. Tell him what happened. I'm calling Mr. Fiore. Lane would love to nail this on me. The green pickup was like a crunched accordion, a mass of metal, having snapped a tall pine and several smaller maples upon impact from above. Oddly, there had been no explosion, and even stranger, no one was inside the truck. What about the plates? asked Jones. Don Pacheco checked the cell. This truck is uh, registered to Avery Thomas Plimpton. Brownie Plimpton? asked Jones. He's locked in my jail cell, Dom said Strickland. Well, his truck wasn't. It was a uh, slip this afternoon from a self-serving Marigold Ave, said Phillips. Who signed for it? The Invisible Man? asked Jones. Phillips evidenced a grin. He found scuff marks on the dirt before the truck hit the guardrail. Then he scrambled away, said Strickland. Phillips shook his head. I doubt it. We estimate that truck was easily doing 70 miles an hour. You need to check Archie Lincoln's house. I believe he was driving that truck. Archie Lincoln? asked Pacheco. Brownie was at his house yesterday before George brought him in on that football incident at the game. What was he doing at Lincoln's house? asked Pacheco. He said that Lincoln wanted to buy some end-of-the-season things from the surf shop. Yeah, right, said Jones. He wanted that pickup for some reason probably to run me off the road and blame it on Brownie. I'll talk to him again, said Strickland. Can I see that truck again? asked Jones. Sure, said Pacheco. Krim, bring Matthias over to the truck. Krim nodded and handed copies from the Big Mama's box to the four men. Mom, Matthias, for all the good it's going to do, nobody's home. What's the story with Coco? asked Jones as they started down the road. Roland Chance is handling the questioning. I guess Herbert was indisposed. Oh, I know what that means. No comment. Jones looked up at the freshly snapped pine tree and the scattered maple branches below the fall foliage. The windshield glass was no doubt scattered somewhere over the forest floor. Even the engine was exposed and the tires popped. Jones looked inside the open passenger window. He must have pitched the gun because he couldn't have held onto it. This is what I don't get, Matthias. How do you get up and walk away from falling out of a truck at high speed? Not important, Krim. What's important is he did survive. True. Jones stuck his head inside without touching the truck. Although the truck had air fresheners under the passenger side dash, Jones sensed something else. Perhaps it was the red pillow that had fallen to the floor. He stepped back. Wolf's lair. What the hell is that? I'm not sure, said Jones as they started back towards Strickland. The car is ready up top, Matthias. They do have what looks like a 38 slug in the dash. He might have gotten me if Coco wasn't standing there. 
I understand that. Apparently there's a team of lawyers at City Hall right now. If it happened the way Coco said, he has no problem. But where's Herbert? Strickland closed his eyes briefly. Don't even get me started on Herbert. Go home and get some sleep, Matthias. Right, I have practice this afternoon. I'm going to question Brownie. He never mentioned a truck. Oh, he was lying about Lincoln buying things at the surf shop. We'll see. Six Feet Under, Chapter 21 Jones's eyes were puffy, lids locked, demonstrably informing him that he should remain sleeping. He reluctantly pried open his eyes when the landline rang. He deliberately nixed the cell phone so he could get a scant few hours of slumber before practice. The blue digital on his dresser read 8.10 a.m. He reached over and fumbled for the receiver. Hello? Matthias! Jones's voice was nasal and down an octave. Arnie, why are you calling me? Sleeping in, huh? I didn't get any sleep last night. Little downtime at Club Max? <laughs> asked Arnie, producing his honking laugh. Shut up, Arnie. What do you want? You can thank me in advance, he said, exhaling, probably from his perpetual cigarette. Goodbye, Arnie. Hey, hey, Bose told me to call you right away. That idiot's not going to work on my patio, yelled Jones as he sat up and rubbed his eyes. They found the foundation. Jones swung his legs over the side of the bed. They've been working for 48 hours on your theory. Are you telling me, said Jones as he shot to his feet, that those bozos are digging up that field? Evelyn said that's what you wanted. I never asked anyone to dig up that field. You better pay him this time. The Iron Man already wants to take you out. Jones slammed down the phone. He quickly changed into his jogging clothes and sneakers and ran downstairs. Within minutes, he was driving the Mustang north on Route 32. He fixated on the puncture in the dash. When he arrived at Northridge Lane, the patio boy's van was parked out front. Incredibly, the top of the entire cement foundation, the footprint of the old apartment building, was outlined above a surrounding trench in the field. With the boombox blasting, Bose turned his shovel and then started down toward Jones. The Iron Man, his muscles rippling in the early morning sun, sneered at Jones and dug faster toward the rear of the foundation. Just make up for your patio, Jones? Bose, who told you to come up here? asked Jones. My clients have anonymity. Jones decided to avoid a confrontation with Bose and the Iron Man. Bose, how deep is that trench? Six feet. Slappy says you're looking for another body. Do we get a bonus for that? Sure, $100 to the man that finds a body down there. Damn, said Bose, slapping his knee. Boys, a hundred bucks for the body. Jones surveyed the length of the scraped out trench. The patio boys still had another couple of feet to dig down to complete the six foot depth. Jones walked the front, which with his feet measurement came out to 65 feet. The side was over 100 feet, but dipped inward like a missing piece. Jones squinted in the sunlight as he panned the bright colors across the Devonshire hills. Lincoln's body must have been racked up if he was driving Brownie's truck, but Jones did not discount whether Lincoln could have hired someone else to drive the truck. 
He turned as the Iron Man, swinging a shovel into the dirt like a piston on a well-oiled machine, grunted and groaned as he sent dirt flying out of the trench. Arlo Wombat's bright green van swung off of Route 32 and onto Northridge Lane. Jones started back along the foundation as Arlo skidded to a stop. Arlo slid open the side window. He wore his blue beach hat and raised a plastic mug with his picture on it advertising his show. Arlo, why are you here? I received a tip from an anonymous source. Right, Arnie Dewars. Jones glanced toward Bose and the others. Arlo, you need to stay clear of this. I can call you if anything develops. Arlo's voice filled with emotion. Coach, this story could get me back on top again. When you go on the air? Ten minutes. Don't do it. Jones started back to the foundation. Hey, you boys are working your asses off, Jones, said Bose. He stared at Arlo's van. Hey, we gonna be on Arlo Wombat? Not if he knows what's good for him, said Jones, looking at the van. Slappy wants his autograph. Forget it. Huh, Arnie was right. Touchy, touchy. Arlo finally backed around and chugged onto Route 32. Jones held his cell phone in his hand, not wanting to call Strickland. The way the patio boys were digging might determine whether there was a body buried in the Northridge Foundation. He dialed Coco. The line rang for at least 20 seconds. Jonesy, what the hell? I spent the night listening to that buffoon chance, and now they tell me that Lane wants to see me this afternoon. What do you want? Patio boys, they're digging up the Northridge Foundation. Lincoln, if he's still alive, will shoot his way in there. Listen, Julio and me are coming over there. Jones sat down inside the Mustang as the patio boys continuously dug around the cement. A few minutes later, Arlo came on the air on Bose's boombox radio. Jones turned on the car radio. Morning, this is our little wombat broadcasting on the run in a rusted mobile unit through the streets of Prince William, New Hampshire and all the surrounds. This morning we're speaking to you from Route 32 in Hamilton. Get out of here, Arlo, said Jones, looking for the van. The patio boys had gathered around the boombox. We are witnessing in Hamilton today the excavating of the Northridge Apartments, which burned to the ground some 25 years ago. This project is like no other. The question is, what will the excavators find? Idiot, cried Jones, but he still could not see the van on Route 32. And now for today's sunny forecast with Dr. Edinger. Thank you, Arlo. Arlo, forecast for the greater Cleveland area calls for scattered showers. Fortunately, we aren't in Cleveland. San Diego has a high of 62. Montana hovering around the freezing mark. That moron can't even give a simple weather forecast, said Jones. Who cares about him, Jonesy? Wombat just announced what's going on up there. If Lincoln hears this, he'll come guns blazing. Jones heard Bose yapping about his boys getting back to work. You get your asses over there and start digging. Move it. Move it right now. You, you get no scratch. I'm going to check the foundation. Jonesy, make sure a yellow Mercedes doesn't run you down. Jones jogged back to the highway as Arlo continued his program. 
He spotted the van about a quarter of a mile away off a side road at the bottom of Fletcher Hill. Then he returned to the foundation as a bulky oil truck from Petro City moved toward the next cul-de-sac house at the end of the lane. Hey, dirt! Hey, dirt! shouted the Iron Man from behind. Jones threw his phone down and ran back to the field. What happened? Look for yourself, said Bose. Outside the actual foundation wall, in the indented area, was a dirt-covered red gym bag. What is it, Iron Man? Don't you come down here yourself like a man, said the Iron Man. Jones vaulted the trench. He lifted the handles upward. Then he unzipped the bag. Inside was a black handgun, gloves, and a ring. Jones looked into the Iron Man's blue eyes. But where the hell is he, Jones? said the Iron Man. He unzipped the side pouch and pulled out Harrison Mobley's wallet from 25 years ago. Any cash in there? asked Bose. Come on, Bose, this is evidence. Jones checked the flap. Three hundred and hundred dollar bills. You gonna use that to pay us? asked Bose. No, I want to find the body. Something is going on down there in the trenches. Coach Matthias Jones and the workmen are looking at something they found down in the trench. Arlo's really getting on my nerves. Now you hate our warbat, said Slappy. A shadow backlit the sun. Jones looked up at the darkened form of Froggy Finley in a white tank top and exercise pants. In his left hand was a serrated, long-bladed hunting knife. Froggy, don't dig anymore. Everyone out of the trench. The digging's over. Nobody tells an Irishman from Connie Clark what to do. Shut up. The Iron Man clamped his hand around Froggy's ankle. He lifted Froggy upward, then let go. Froggy descended quickly into the trench, the knife still in his hand. Then the Iron Man raised his clenched fists. Come on, you knife-wielding coward. It appears as though someone has fallen into the trench. This is Arlo Wombat, and you're listening to As It Happens, live from Hamilton. Put down the knife, Froggy, said Jones. Out of here, all of you. As the Iron Man stepped toward Froggy, Froggy somehow leaped up and within seconds had the knife blade at the Iron Man's neck from behind. I'll kill him, I'll kill him. Fight like a man. Lincoln's making you do this, isn't he, Froggy? Jones took a step forward, but Froggy made a crazy face and exposed his teeth. This is ridiculous. Hey, looky here, a sneaker. Guess you're too late, Froggy. If you kill Mobley, then they've got you now. I have to do what I have to do. Jones believed Froggy was about to slice the Iron Man's neck. He lunged for Froggy and stomped his foot. Froggy dropped the knife into the dirt as the Iron Man flipped around and punched Froggy three feet down the trench. Jones grabbed the knife. The Iron Man stood above him with his arm extended. You saved my life, Jones. Nice punch said Jones, the knife in his hand. Well, trouble found you, my friend. I'll never forget it. As the Iron Man spoke, Bose called out from down the trench. Hey, looky here. Shoes. Two nice-looking Italian shoes attached to the bones. Listen, Bose, wait till the police get here. Don't touch anything. Who are you to be barking out orders at me? shouted Bose. Jones says, don't touch it. And that's what he means, old man. As Jones waddled down the dirt trench, a shot reverberated across the field. He dove into the dirt. Incoming! Incoming! 
The Iron Man rocked on his belly like a snake moving through the trench. Come in north on the hill, said the Iron Man. How do you know that, Iron Man? The Iron Man's got a compass in his head, said Bose. A good sense of direction, that's good, said Jones, as a bullet chipped the concrete above, followed by the rifle crack. The Iron Man was in an accident. They never got that compass out of his head. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Shots have sounded and fire directed at the foundation here in North Hamilton. Calling all police, calling all police. A live shooter at Northridge Lane in Hamilton. That's the first smart thing Arlo said all morning, said Jones. Arlo didn't bet, said the Iron Man. Jones did not know how to escape the bullets. We better hope the police heard him. We slappy, slappy, if you're alive, cough twice. Jones heard three coughs and rolled his eyes. <coughs> that you, Slappy? Of course it's him, said Jones. He just can't count. Just stay where you are, Slappy. Slappy can sleep in the swamp. I'll remember that if it starts raining, said Jones. Iron Man, help me dig around these shoes. Iron Man fell to his knees and began scratching the dirt like a dog uncovering a bone. You can use the shovel. That's not as accurate when you're digging with your claws. Three shots in rapid succession pinged the concrete again, only inches away from Jones. Damn! Jones leaned back against the dirt wall as another round began, but bullets did not seem to deter the Iron Man. Jones did not hear any police sirens, but saw Strickland's SUV and Wendell's cruiser speed up Route 32. Both vehicles blocked Northridge Lane. Additional shots, probably directed at the cruisers, filled the air. Jonesy, you're right! yelled Coco from behind the bushes. We're trapped! SWAT teams are coming in from PW. Who's up on the hill? Don't know. Has to be Lincoln. The froggy's in the trench. Someone sent him after us. He's been disabled. Stay down! No argument here, George. A series of shots from two directions sent Jones near the sneakers in the red jogging pants. The remains of Harrison Mobley, fighter, athlete, and assistant Hamilton coach, resided now as bones in a jogging suit. Lincoln had committed a crime that never would have been investigated if not for Jones's loose pavers. Those shots are coming down the lane and the top of the hill, said Strickland from behind the bushes near the street. Wendell, circle around the back of the hill. A few seconds later, Jones saw Wendell running up Route 32. Then he crossed the highway into the woods. Other cars and SUVs were soon lined up on Route 32. Jones heard Arnie yeah, Dewar's voice through the sniper fire. At the end of the trench, away. Froggy, still dazed, sat up. You're under fire, Froggy. Lincoln. More bullets ricocheted off the concrete. What about him? He never let go. I saw him drag Mobley out of the house and into the back seat of his car. And then he jumped in after him. He made me swear never to tell a soul. He saw the brown car pull away. And he never stopped making me do favors for him. Did you burn my Jeep? He shook his head and then wiped his brow. Then it was Gitaki. I don't know nothing about that. I just did what he told me. And the houses? He didn't tell me nothing. Jones moved to his left and one of the bullets hit the dirt. Paul Coco from some distance back. 
Where are the Prince William cops, Coco? Just stay put. Great. We can rush the gunman, said Bones. One of us will come out alive. I think I'll pass, answered Jones. A little courage goes a long way, said Bose. That stupid old man, shouted the Iron Man. They're firing at us from two different angles. He's moving, said Bose. One shooter. Jones listened to the next volley of shots coming from the end of the lane as an oil truck started. Stop that truck, yelled Strickland. The engine noise grew louder and the ground rumbled. Jones moved past Froggy as more shots came from the hill. He scurried along the back wall as Slappy leaped around the corner. Hurry, Jones! They're pumping oil into the trench! Jones saw the oozing black liquid flow like water from a bursting dam. He pulled Slappy back but was met by Froggy and the Iron Man as oil raced in from the other side of the trench. The Iron Man and Bose crawled along the trench after Froggy. He's gonna light it on fire! shouted the Iron Man. Mother of God! We have no choice. Stay down. We'll all go to the back of the trench and toward Fletcher Hill. I'll kill the bastard. Jones pushed each of the men over the top of the trench. The Iron Man crawled over himself, followed by Jones. Once on the grass, the orange and red foliage appeared several hundred feet away at the base of Fletcher Hill. To his right, leaning on a piece of wood for a crutch, Archie Lincoln, the side of his face scraped and scabbed with blood, hobbled forward. In his right arm, he cradled a rifle, and his other arm hung limp. His left eye was crusted and swollen. You couldn't just let it be, Jones! He removed a clear lighter from his pants pocket. The flame flared upward. You like fires, Lincoln, don't you? Especially when they cover up your dirty work. Shut up, Jones! He released the flaming lighter into the trench. In just a few seconds, the flames spread across the oil, and then more blue-yellow flames rose out of the entire surround near the silver oil truck. Intense heat radiated toward Jones and the others. Lincoln began to restrain laughter as he raised the rifle. Ah, uh, uh, you first, Jones! Then you'll be incinerated! <laughs> His eyes reflected the now brightening orange flames around the trench. An odd, almost delirious smile hung on his face, like the last dripping wax of a spent candle. Jones looked down the length of the long metal rifle barrel. Lincoln's good eye focused Jones in the rifle sights. Coco rose from the grass and sprinted toward Lincoln. He leaped in the air and hit Lincoln midway up his back. The rifle fired into the grass. Coco kicked the rifle and then lifted Lincoln upward as Jones ran forward. In a single blow, Coco smacked Lincoln's jaw, sending it stumbling back toward the flames. Jones pivoted to save the attorney, making a leaping dive. Tilting like a seesaw, Lincoln slowly lost his footing and descended into the fire. Jones closed his eyes to the momentary screams. Coco appeared over his left shoulder. The fool stumbled back. Jones gazed into the fire and then turned to Coco. Unbelievable. The scum is dead. Let's get out of here, Jonesy. They took a wide berth around the field. In the distance, Wendell, carrying a hunting rifle, marched Miriam Lincoln in handcuffs down toward Strickland. They stuffed her in Wendell's cruiser. Are you kidding me? yelled Coco. The wife was shooting that rifle from the hill? Coco, 
I don't know what she knew or she didn't know. I think Miss Miriam Kendall Lincoln, over all these years, like Froggy, Gataki, and Brownie, did exactly what Archie Lincoln told them to do. Six Feet Under, Epilogue. Hey, buddy! Buddy! You talking to me? Yes, I'm Arlo Wombat. I'm on my way to Hamilton for a special event in the parish hall. All my tires have gone flat. Oh, gee, that's a shame. You think you can help me out? Oh, I can help you all right. No problem. Thank you, thank you. I'll pay you big money. I'm sure you will. Then I have to get over to Hamilton to the first parish church. No problem, Rabbi. At least a hundred people circled Hamilton Fletcher, dressed immaculately in his dark threaded suit, as he reluctantly stood next to Bucky's new shiny green security car. Ralphie had delivered the new car during the ecumenical service that had just taken place inside the tall pane windows of First Parish Church. Coco parked his black Corvette, just detailed in Prince William, on Main Street, and walked in his dark leather jacket under the yellow and red maples. Where the hell is Driscoll? asked Hamilton Fletcher, adjusting his red silk tie. I believe he's in the restroom said the diminutive Pastor Sykes. His bald head reflected the autumn light. Oh, for Pete's sake, if Driscoll would lay off the donuts, he'd stay out of the bathroom. <laughs> the rodent would be late for Santa Claus' arrival from the North Pole. Jones turned to Coco. What do you hear about Miriam? Uzi said she's being charged as an accessory as well as attempted murder. Her lawyer is one of Lincoln's hacks. She claims she didn't know nothing and just did what Lincoln told her to do. She's all done, Jonesy. What about Larson? Jones rolled his eyes. Lark thought because he saw Mobley shoveling dirt 25 years ago that he would be killed to cover up Lovell's murder. Only Mobley ended up dead. Right. Lark and Flo have matching U.S. Army tents in front of their houses while the new ones are being built. Yeah, I just saw Camp Larson when I came into town. Jones caught sight of Bucky exiting the church. Here comes Bucky. <laughs> Star of the day. If Driscoll had just told the truth, he would have spared himself and the old man a lot of grief. And Finley. Jones looked into his dark eyes. Lincoln had Froggy convinced he would be charged just for watching Lincoln leave with Mobley from my house. The fool was in Lincoln's pocket. It's his own fault for being so stupid. Lincoln was a genius on how to put on the squeeze, including Miriam. Right, enjoy your new patio, Jonesy. The whole incident just shows you need to be armed. I can get you. Hopefully the shootouts are over and done with, Coco, said Jones. Not if you keep sticking your nose into murders, bro. Bucky, still zipping up his fly, waddled down from the church sidewalk. Hey, everybody. That <laughs> real class act, that rodent. Come on, Driscoll, get over here, growled Hamilton Fletcher. He motioned Bucky toward the car. Let's get this over with. What kind of car is that, asked Jones. Ralphie said it's an electric car called a static. I call it his buzz car, said Coco. 
Is that car electric? Asked Strickland in his blue blazer and matching tie. I bet Hamilton was tired of paying Bucky's crazy gas bills, said Jones. Strickland chuckled. If that's electric, surer than sure he'll run out of charge somewhere. Jones grinned as everyone gathered around the car. May I have your attention? It's my pleasure to present Security Officer Driscoll with a new static. I'm told you have to be careful with an electric car because they can't hear you approaching. Who will he hit next? whispered Strickland. Thank you, Mr. Fletcher, said Bucky. As head of law enforcement at Hamilton College, this guy knows the meaning of secure and patrol. I think I'll hit the punch bowl, said Jones as he started toward the parish hall door. Don't leave me out here. People had just begun to trickle across the parish hall's aqua-colored tiles. Hello, coach, said Franny, setting down a tray of sandwiches on the side table. See, Bucky is getting his new car. I really thought he was driving that car that forced Woozy off the road, said Jones as Strickland came through the front doors. Couldn't take it, huh, George? Bucky is still talking. By the way, I just got the background report on Lincoln. The tag number was expunged, which took some political pull to accomplish that. Franny moved around the table. What about Froggy, George? What happens to him now? Strickland crossed his arms. Froggy is being evaluated, Franny. Good luck to that psychiatrist. Something about Stockholm Syndrome. Need any help, Fran? Asked Jones. We're supposed to bring out the punch bowl. There'll be dozens of people in here in just minutes. Well, where is it? Back in the kitchen. I want to keep our police chief happy. Inside the packed hall, Lark and Flo had cornered Jones, regaling him with decades of boring stories about Hamilton athletics. So you lost to St. Pat's, Matthias. I know the feeling. You're in good company. Jones cringed at being in the losing column with Lark. Well, at least you got to that nurse's apartment, Lark. She's also a great Mathars therapist. Jones expanded his cheeks with air. Right, and Gataki is gone. Lark stroked his chin. I don't think he liked me. Oh, really? What makes you say that, Lark? He kept telling me to keep my big mouth shut, said Lark. I'm shocked, said Jones sarcastically. He told me if I didn't stop my football stories, he would jump on a samurai sword. Jones laughed. Some people just don't appreciate the past, Lark. Exactly, old boy, said Lark. I'm glad you understand. Oh, I get it. What about your houses? What houses? asked Lark as Coco walked inside. The ones in back of your tents, replied Jones. Oh, living in the tent is saving a lot of money. <laughs> what a pika, said Coco as he walked up to the window. Look, Lark, said Jones. Driscoll's still flapping his chops, said Coco as he returned. Even the old man couldn't take it. Just Dewars and his sister are out there. Evelyn Dewars was a beauty queen, said Lark. Coco turned to Lark. Oh yeah, Lawson? I didn't know the zoo had beauty pageants. Did they? Right, said Coco as he guided Jones away from Lark. Jonesy, BB's driving over here. I need you to just talk to her. Use one of your inspirational speeches. How's she doing? The loser was her brother, Jonesy. Yeah, I can talk to her. Smart that you got her out of town with Gataki on the loose. 
Never put your life on the line for a lunatic or a liar. Jones pointed over to Woozy in a Hamilton red hoodie and dark sweats. He motioned Coco over with his head. How's it feel to be out, Wooz? asked Jones. You make it sound like I'm out on bail, said Woozy, looking up at Coco. Coco? Williams? Hey, you still on the DL? Another week, but I'll be at practice after Froggy Finley ruined our defense. We should have beat Mac, said Jones. Absolutely, replied Woozy. Finley was a stooge, said Coco. Lincoln was a pusher. A neat little trick, as my dad would say. He made people think things that never happened. Coco chuckled. Lawson doesn't need any help being a dummy, and Kendall Lincoln was a mouse. Till she got the rifle, said Jones. Gallagher held a glass of punch as he approached. I couldn't stay outside listening to Bucky's dribble. Yeah, with Driscoll's mouth, even the birds are heading south, father, said Coco. I thought the service went well, Jim, said Jones. Maybe someday you'll get your chapel over here in Hamilton. Well, I'm hopeful, said Gallagher as the patio boys crossed the parish hall. Father, I just want to shake hands with the New England champ, said the Iron Man in his Sunday best. That was a long time ago. You're the Iron Man. Yes, father. You were undefeated in Ireland. Ah, before Jones here caught me. Well, you walked into the punch, Hagen, said Jones. Either way, I went down. The Iron Man shook Jones's hand as Bucky strode inside, gripping his belt loops. I remember the words of my father on his wedding day. There's nothing so bad that it couldn't be worse. Jones tilted his head. Well, Hagen, you're in the right town. I want to thank you boys for your work at Northridge. Thank you for the bonus, said Bose, still dressed in his work clothes. Slappy bought a house. That's impossible, said Jones. Doghouse for Digger, my dog. Hey, what do you think now, Mr. Smarty Pants Matthias? Asked Bucky. About what, Bucky? You didn't believe me. How many times do you want me to apologize, Bucky? Gallagher sipped his punch and grinned. May your neighbors respect you, your troubles neglect you, the angels protect you, and heaven accept you. Hey, I knew that from Sunday school, Father, said Bucky. It's an Irish proverb, Bucky, said Gallagher. You ought to write it down. Nah, keep it up here, said Bucky, pointing to his head. Yeah, that's a real steel trap, said Coco. Hey, Driscoll, screamed the large-framed Evelyn Dewars from the doorway. Uh-oh. She wore a flowery red-and-white dress and stood with Arnie Dewars, looking spiffy in his blue blazer and, and paisley red tie. I'm talking to you, Driscoll. Yes, Evelyn, said Bucky as he spun around and scampered like a groundhog over to Evelyn. The rodent is a bigger wuss than I thought, said Coco. That woman is trouble. Plus, she's the spitting image of Dewars. Now, now, we can't help how we're born, said Gallagher. <laughs> oh, I hatched, said Coco, laughing at Bucky as his phone rang. Hey, yeah, yeah, I'll send him out. Bebe asked Jones. The coy look, Gallagher raised his brows. Thanks, Jonesy. Jones, getting a sneer from Evelyn Dewars, crossed the hall. He pushed open the door. Bebe, her back to the hall, stood in a long white fur coat next to a white Lexus. Her long hair ruffled slightly in the wind. Jones thought Bebe's beautiful hair, along with the foliage, would make a nice picture. 
He walked around Bucky's new security car. Bibi, she slowly turned. He expected her eyes to be moist and red, but she looked stunning as she did inside Club Max. Her teeth were white with just a touch of lipstick. Thanks for coming out, Jonesy. She hugged him and Jones was immediately taken by her perfume. I just want to thank you. Thank me? Bibi, your brother is dead because of me. She shook her head and her blue eyes focused on him. Derek was my brother, yes, but he was no good. A threat. Look what he did to your jeep and to those houses over there. Derek never cared who he hurt or killed. Somehow Lincoln found out about him and used him. I just want you to know that I know you had to find out what happened, and you did. Once I began hearing about Mobley, it bothered me. Arnie and Bucky watched Jones from the window. I think you're pretty smart. I think you're a lady with class. Thanks, she said with a pressed smile. And I know we live in separate worlds, but I think you're great. Then she kissed him long enough for Arnie and Bucky to start hounding Jones oh, from the open window. You're a strong woman, BB. I know that doesn't bother you, Jonesy. No, it doesn't, said Jones, shaking his head. Any time you want to go out, you let me know. I will, Jones answered. She flitted around the Lexus and soon moved smoothly down the drive. Coco, now smoking a cigarette, walked with Gallagher out of the parish hall. I watched your body language, Jonesy. Whatever you said seemed to work. She did kiss him, Coco. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, sure, Jonesy. At the parish hall door, a man in a fedora and a long, dark jacket turned toward Jones and the others. He wore reflective sunglasses. From his right cuff, several metal, finger-like spikes popped out. He nodded once, retracted the metal, and disappeared around the building. Jones turned to Coco. The claw. Whoa, said Coco, staring at the building corner. They stood in place for half a minute before Gallagher pointed ahead to the gravestones lining the cemetery hill. Follow me over here. Gallagher led the way under the cemetery's gray stone arch. They climbed the hill under the yellow maples and toward the stone mausoleum. Jones was drawn to the rectangular plot of fresh dirt cut into the trim grass ahead. No stone had yet been put in place. Betty Ann Lovell, said Jones. They buried her with the charm bracelet Mobley stole before he buried her. It was on his wrist at Northridge. Gallagher nodded. Kid never had a chance. Caught between Mobley and Lincoln, said Coco, pitching the cigarette. At the edge of the dirt, Gallagher blessed himself. Eternal rest unto Betty Ann, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon her. May she rest in peace. Amen. With Brownie Clinton in jail for throwing a football at Jones at the game, Jones goes up to Northridge. The patio boys are digging like dogs around the foundation, the old foundation of Northridge Apartments. They want to be paid. Evelyn Dewars has said that Jones ordered it. Pulling up to the site is Arlo Wombat's green van, and he goes on the air describing what has happened, which brings in Archie Lincoln. The remains of Mobley are found in a jogging suit, and Arnie Dewis knew all along 
that Lincoln had killed Mobley and had dragged the body into his car and then up to the apartments. At the end of the book, Bucky is given a new electric car due to being falsely accused of running Woozy Williams off the road. Jones meets with B.B. outside and they talk for a short time. Perhaps in another time and place, they would have gotten together. But they live, as B.B. said, in two separate worlds. Gallagher, Coco, and Jones are over Betty Ann Lovell's grave, where Gallagher pronounces a prayer for the dead. I'm Robert P. Fitton. We've got the first Matthias Jones book, which is called Rest in Peace, Bill Jones. Coming up next time. This is the beginning of the Matthias Jones series. How Jones got recruited to come to Hamilton, New Hampshire. Jones had just won the National High School Championship. He was recruited by Coco Stefani, who saw Jones win the championship on Channel Z and convinced Hamilton Fletcher to bring him in and boot out Locke Larson. But there is a glitch as Coco comes out to Indiana to talk to Jones. Jones's dad, a veteran investigator, is murdered and left in this truck at the river's edge. Jones and Coco become friends, tracking down Bill Jones's killer. Their efforts are thwarted by the insane Lester Larson, a short little munchkin of a man, son of bumbling coach Lark Larson. He attempts to prevent Jones from replacing his father as coach. That's what's happening next time. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Thank you for listening to Six Feet Under, and I'll see you next time. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.